Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. This is part two of my discussion with Thomas Frank about his book, The People Know. <laughs> I got to get the inflection right on that to get the uh, uh, proper ridicule dripping off the lips of uh, so liberal can I give it a, Can I give it a <laughs> shot, Paul? So my, yeah, my, uh, my daughter and I were actually working when I did the audio book of this, we were working on how to how to say the title. And here's what I finally came up with. The people know. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> At any rate, once again, and joining me is Thomas Frank, who has just told us how to say the title of the book. And uh, I assume everybody knows, but just in case, uh, Thomas Frank is the author of many books, most notably What's the Matter with Kansas? And he's in Kansas as we speak and listen liberal. And his most recent book, he just told us how to say that people know. And I refuse to whine the way he just said it. <laughs> Even if it captures the full meaning of the title. All right, so we left off part one. The, in the, as we head into the 1920s, the populist movement has more or less fizzled out. Uh, it's kind of split. Uh, some of the movement is sort of assimilated into the Democratic Party. Some have gone into various socialist parties. Uh, the 1920s is a period where everyone's optimistic. Capitalism seems to be just honky-dory. Lots of people are buying into the stock market and borrowing, and there's the promise of uh, wealth for everybody. And then along comes the great crash in 1929. And we won't get into exactly why all that happened, but not the least of which is the amount of speculation and, and, and leveraging, borrowing money to buy stocks and, and, and other issues. And then we head into the Great Depression. Um, so this this now starts the beginning of may not have been called the next version of the populist movement, but in substance, it's very similar. So talk about the development of the movement in the 30s and how influenced is what was the populist movement coming out of areas like Kansas with the kind of socialist and, and communist movement that's developing in some of the cities, uh, influenced by Marx and, and socialist movements all over the world. Uh, I guess there's separate strains, but they're certainly very related too. Yeah. So uh, to take a step back, uh, a lot of populists, when, when the um, People's Party fell apart after the 1896 election, a lot of them went into the Socialist Party. And in fact, Kansas had a big... Um, socialist contingent and so did Oklahoma. Oklahoma was, I believe, the had the most socialists per capita of any state, which is hard to believe. You know, Trump won every single county there. <laughs> but uh makes you uh, think of West Virginia used to be something like exactly. that. Exactly. Same same story there. But uh <clears throat> The uh, uh, you know in the 1930s it was the the, the word populist was not used to describe the uh, left wing movements of the day, but it's it's appropriate because in my mind they come out of the same tradition that the populist tradition sort of Franklin Roosevelt talks like the populists used to has a lot of ideas like they used to, uh, and even more sort of. Um, important is the labor movement. So the populists had reached out to organized labor in the 1890s. Uh, some unions signed up with them, but uh, 
by and large, their leadership did not because they didn't they didn't believe in working. They didn't believe in having a, a political party. And, uh, you know, they thought they should work through the two main parties or something like that. And by the 1930s, uh, uh, labor is very different. It's really radical. They are uh, – or it's – I don't know. It's exploding in size. Let's put it that way. Uh, People are signing up for unions all over America and labor becomes – organized labor becomes the great force of the decade, the great social movement. So every bit as as big and as powerful and as strong as the farmers – you know, the radical farmer movement had been in the 1890s. And there were also radical farmers in the 30s. There were a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, like the uh, – in in Minnesota, you had this thing called the Farmer Labor Party. They still exist today. Now, they've they've been folded into the Democratic Party now, but this was their heyday. They elected a a very radical governor of Minnesota. There were similar politicians uh, in all sorts of different parts of America. But basically, this sort of populist dream of bringing together all these different working class people, uh, it succeeds in the 1930s. And you have a very radical decade. And there's um, uh, a... the the culture of the decade is extremely populist. Uh, I'm thinking of the WPA murals, the you know the uh, Hollywood movies, even uh, you know made by people like Frank Capra. Uh, all of them were, and we mentioned Carl Sandburg in the last episode. All of them were the sort of the great uh, theme of of the art of the 1930s was the nobility of the common man, you know, the people, and. Uh, uh, you know, and it, it went it went along with the left wing politics of the period, and so you finally did have a regulatory state, and you finally had you know uh, a workers were able to organize, and the government started, you know, the income tax began in earnest, and there was deficit spending, and the government set up relief programs, and they hired people to do public works, you know, it was uh, it was an amazing time, time of great ferment, and the what. So as, as we mentioned at the very start of the show, Paul, the book is a history of different sort of populist chapters in American life. But it's more importantly, it's a history of anti-populism, of how those uh, how people opposed those, the, the populist tradition. That's that's much more interesting to me. And uh, what you see in the 30s is in 1932, when Roosevelt was first elected, uh, people really didn't know what to expect. They didn't know what kind of president he would be. Uh, his platform looked pretty conventional, um, and you know he he did he he did talk big about the New Deal, but nobody knew what he meant by that. By 1936, however, they did know, uh, and they knew what it consisted of, and it was you know regulating banks, regulating big business, you know all the things that I just mentioned. And the again, you had this. Um, what I call a democracy scare, when the members of the elite in America uh, come together in this kind of ironclad consensus against what they regard as the worst elements of society who are trying to take power and, uh, you know, it, uh, sort of inflict taxation and regulation on their betters. And they talked this way very openly. And the, the groups I'm referring to in the 1930s, it's very similar to 1896. So it's uh, newspaper publishers, of course, the Republican Party, of course, and then this sort of union of uh, business interests that was called the American Liberty League. It's the sort of great first of the great right wing front groups. And they raised an extraordinary amount of money, more than they had more than a political party, more than the Republican Party, and spent it to 
uh, bring Roosevelt down and, uh, you know, went on this just like 1896, went on the war path against him in this incredible way. Uh, and I, again, have a lot of fun uh, in the book quoting and, you know, giving illustrations of what their war on Roosevelt looked like. Uh, it's it's very funny. It's so but again, it's it, it sort of turns. There's a reason historians don't write about this stuff. It's 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 a. Uh, revolting there's a lot of, a lot of there's a lot of scientific racism sort of uh, uh bound up in the war on roosevelt because as i said it's it's a democracy scare so it's not just that they're angry at roosevelt they are they they perceive the the sort of deplorables are 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 coming to get them and they've got a you know it's the whole sort of bottom half of society is you know is 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 trying to get above its station is trying to uh, order its betters around uh, well there's a section of the US elites that are very pro hitler starting of course with henry ford who was a sort of well known one and was given the uh, equivalent of the iron cross by hitler wait are, are, isn't that a, a lindbergh no no henry ford Ford used to send Hitler, I think it was $500,000 every year on his birthday. Oh, my God. And Hitler actually uh, credited Ford with inspiring his anti-Semitism and opening his eyes to the threat of the Jews. Really? And, and Oh, yeah. Hitler was a big fan of Ford and vice versa. Huh. So the I, I was surprised at how how much uh, fascism there was in the United States in the 30s. Um, William Randolph Hearst ran newspaper columns by Goering. <laughs> I didn't know that. There, I mean, and there were all sorts of little local fascist groups that were set up to break strikes, uh, that sort of thing. Well, General Motors was arming Hitler. The, the, when, when, Hitler, when Hitler invaded Poland, he's doing it in vehicles made by GM. <laughs> what really got me, Paul, is um, reading through the, the sort of barrage of hate directed at Roosevelt. And it's, it, like I say, it's, it's, it's almost exactly analogous to what they did to William Jennings Bryan in 1896. Uh, and I was reading through it. Uh, you, you know, the, the Internet is such a wonderful thing, Paul. You can do this research without you don't you don't really have to go to the archives anymore or to the library. I mean, you have to go a couple times. Right. But but you don't have to spend every waking hour there anymore. You can do so much of it over the Internet. And uh, I was able to read, you know, like all of these pamphlets issued by the American Liberty League, many of which were transcriptions of radio speeches. And the red baiting of Roosevelt is just incredible. And the as I mentioned before the, the eugenics. I was so surprised at how many times these um, antagonists of the New Deal, and these are prestigious men, these are uh, leading economists, leading lawyers, leading uh, captains of industry came back to eugenics as a way of describing what they were trying to say, which is that the ruling class rules because they are better people. So FDR does not try to have, quote unquote, bipartisan politics because of this populist support. Uh, he's a he crushes he fights his enemies he 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 does not try to compromise with these other sections of the elites which is kind of in itself fascinating and, and then he picks uh, they do they do offer the olive branch to him very early on the elites say you know go back on the gold standard stop encouraging workers to organize this is what the, the National Association of Manufacturers one of the the you know the big uh, corporate 
sort of front group uh, said this to him, and 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 he and his uh, he and his associates basically laughed it off. You know, they're like, "No way, no way are we doing that." And so then the war was on. Yes, and he did not uh, he did not compromise. This is one of the most extraordinary things about Roosevelt. He fought them very forthrightly and was real upfront about it, gave uh, uh, primetime radio speeches about what, what he saw happening. We have taken the, you know, the, the power away from this country's dynastic rulers and they want their power back. And he, you know, he said this to the American people and, and it rang true. I mean, they could see that that was the case in their own lives. And he advocated, he advocated something that, frankly, even Bernie Sanders didn't advocate, although I'm sure he supports. But Roosevelt advocated public ownership. Though he talked about the electrical utilities. Yes. And if they can't service the population in with effective and reasonably priced electricity, then they should be taken over and turned into publicly owned utilities. And you can extend that principle. Yes, he did say that. And the, that's the famous, uh, uh, what's the law called? P-U-H-C-A. I'm trying to remember what it's stands for. It finally got repealed and or most of it got repealed in one of the big deregulatory measures of, you know, a couple decades ago. You you once said something to me in one of the interviews we did earlier that the liberal elites that run the Democratic Party, the the, the aristocracy of the Democratic Party, it's not that they they it's not that they don't like the left of the party, the Bernie Sanders and such. They hate it, you said. I'm quoting you. Yeah, they just despise and, them, yeah. And I think it's it's really interesting that they they idealize or idolize FDR, but they despise the actual policies he advocated and the people that supported him. That's that is exactly right. They like him because he was a winner. And you know, look, he's he is the reason you have a democratic party today. You know, they the it, it, it all goes back to Franklin Roosevelt. So they, they admire him because he did, you know, he was a, look, the guy was a master politician. I was reading one of the biographies of him. And they said, you could, you could draw, you could take a map of America and draw a line across it. And Roosevelt, every county that you, the line went through Roosevelt could tell you who it voted for, who was in charge in that county, how, what the issues were that the people there cared about, et cetera, et cetera. He was a, he was a, a an excellent, uh, preternaturally good uh, politician, and yeah, if it wasn't for him, you, the Democratic Party would not really exist today. So he's they they have to admire him, but yeah, you're exactly right. They they uh, they hate and despise the kind of people that supported him and that made up his administration and that you know were doing things in the 1930s that made this country a middle class, you know. Paul, we keep all my conversations with you. We come back to the ironies of American history that the, the, the success of the New Deal gives you in turn the great middle class. You know, suddenly blue collar workers are paid, not suddenly, but, over. Uh, you know, give it a give the New Deal a couple decades to work. And by the 1960s, blue collar workers are being paid, you know, they're middle class citizens and they have a house in the suburbs and they have two cars and et cetera, et cetera. And uh <laughs> They become a lot of them become Republicans. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I, that's too much. I, I bit off. 
too much there. That's a, I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to, I want to go back to the thirties. I want to stick with Roosevelt. So they, they, the, I, the campaign against him is, is, is shocking, but it involves the same kind of ironclad consensus of elites that you saw in the 1890s. And, um, there's i have a the i think the best illustration of this uh, is one i just found by chance i was reading of all things thomas hart benton's memoirs benton was from kansas city and uh, uh i i finally got around to reading his memoirs i meant to read it for many years but there's this he used to just drive around the state of missouri just meeting people you know taking pictures of them uh, you know painting them and um that summer he describes uh you know driving around meeting people and he's in a, the home of a banker somewhere, a retired banker, a man of standing. And the banker, uh, uh, Benton, apparently makes the grave faux pas of <laughs> saying something nice about the, the New Deal, you know. And the the, the banker just erupts and, uh, you know, and talks about how they're going, you know, that, that, that we're going to put your class back in their place and we have the machine guns and this kind of thing. This is the most extraordinary outburst. But that was the feeling on the ground, this hatred of Roosevelt. The newspapers of this country dis- absolutely despised the man. And I take a whole lot of illustrations of this from the Chicago Tribune, which is legendary for their anti-Roosevelt invective. They would put every day on the front page, there'd be a little notice at the bottom, this is in 1936, leading up to the election, it would say, uh, you have X number of days in which to save your country, you know, however many days it was counting down to the election. <laughs> and uh, they did this every day. And you can look it all up. It's all easily easy to find online. Now go back and read your Chicago Tribunes. And they would run an editorial every day under the headline, throw the rascals out, you know, denouncing Roosevelt as a communist, denouncing him as, you know, it's class war. These people are in Competent. These people are paranoid. These people are mentally ill. I mean, they meaning the New Dealers. Um, you know, this is the worst elements of society trying to lord it over their rightful masters. This is the world turned upside down. That's how they greeted the New Deal. And and then, of course, uh, he won in the, one of the greatest landslides of all time. Uh, Roosevelt totally prevailed. Uh, so the, they were able to defeat William Jennings Bryan with this strategy, but Roosevelt beat them. He had the radio. He had, you know, his support among the people. They could see that he wasn't really, you know, his support was very strong. They could see he wasn't really a communist. He wasn't really crazy. He wasn't a dictator. <laughs> you know, he wasn't a, a, a an authoritarian. They could see that and they could hear his voice on the radio. And, um, and he won in this in this in this overwhelming landslide, where was I going with all this? The uh, the thing is that it was another democracy scare. So this is a pattern, Paul, that recurs throughout American history. 1896, then again in 1936, and it always consists of the same thing. So the press comes together, unanimity. You have this uh, coming together of academics. Uh, there the uh, there are all of these sort of you know. Uh, whatever statements signed by a whole bunch of economists, something that you see again in our own time. Uh, But orthodoxy, orthodoxy is the key. Orthodoxy came together against Roosevelt and his experiment, experimentation. And this whole idea of a, of a, you know, the, 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 the unfit members of society rising up against their betters. So we head into World War II, 
Um, and I'm going to just jump through so many things that one should talk about if you're digging into this. But that's what the book does. It, it, no, it, the book, the whole idea is to do this episodically because you can't do the whole history, right? Well, I, I want to hit something that maybe isn't as touched into the book, but I think we need to talk about. Uh, Roosevelt's vice president at this uh, by this point is Henry Wallace. And it's actually really of, of, of mainstream politicians, the really embodiment of these kind of progressive populist socialist ideals is uh, certainly as socialistic as you'd get it in a vice president. Uh, yeah. And, and from, from Iowa, from this sort of radical farmer, actually he was not, he didn't think of himself as a radical, but what he was from this, this sort of farmer background, farmer labor background. And it's the policy he came to in the end was as radical as anything you could find in, yep. in that kind of, that kind of politics. But at the, but at the democratic convention, I guess it's in 1945. 44. Yeah. They toss they toss him overboard. Yeah, yeah. They dump Wallace. Get you know, Truman becomes president. The, Truman drops atomic weapons on Japan, and and is part of goes along with ushering in the House of Un American Activities Committee, McCarthyism, which attacks anything that's certainly anything communist, socialist, but even anything populist, anything that even smells slightly of a kind of left populism gets viciously attacked and, and, you know, practically drives it underground in the, in the 1950s. Yeah. Um, and, and that becomes who the democratic party is for quite some time. Yeah. But I, I would go, I would go easier on Truman than that. I, he, it is true that he sort of unleashed the, uh, uh, you know, McCarthyism, but I don't think, I mean, he, he, he clearly thought it was out of hand when McCarthy got going. You know, McCarthy called, McCarthy called him a communist. You know, yeah. Well, not just the McCarthyism, because there's no bigger democracy scare than the Cold War. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's another another you know great moment of hysteria. I feel off. I'm no, I'm getting way ahead of myself here, but I feel often like we're living. I mean, we're we're living through some version of that again today. You know, but we'll talk about that later. Truman, Truman did use. Uh, uh, I mean, what they did to Henry Wallace is one of the heroes of the book. So Henry Wallace also was a great user of populist language. He wrote a book even called uh, The Century of the Common Man. And it was supposed to be his reply, his pushback to uh, uh, when the Time magazine said that this is the American century. He said, no, this is the century of the common man. That kind of language was very common uh, in the New Deal days, and especially during the World War II iteration of the New Deal, when they were you know, trying to persuade uh, the rest of the world that we, you know, we were not just fighting to rescue the British Empire, which is what we turned out to do. <laughs> but but uh, what, Truman, uh, yeah, was Truman was 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 clearly uh, you know less radical than uh, than Wallace, but he did have uh, he did do a couple of really really wonderful things. And one of them, I mean, they didn't get anywhere, but he's the one that proposed universal health care for America and really fought for it and was, uh, was beaten on this. I mean, this is by within, within, you know, two years of the end of world war two, the, uh, you know, the, the sort of the right is pushing back in exactly the way that you just described. And, you know, his, uh, his universal health care never gets anywhere, but, uh, it was, uh, that was the sort of the, we've never got it in this country and, Damn, it would be nice if we had it now. I keep thinking about that as we go through this epidemic. See, I th the way I see it is, you know, from Truman 
and then you get into uh, you know when in Kennedy the 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 party gives up this kind of uh, real policies to some extent rhetorical but actual policies of Roosevelt of taking on concentration of wealth taking on the big banks taking on uh, the the what there's an or a fascinating quote from uh, Roosevelt where he says this merging of corporate interest and the and the government and the state is the definition of fascism. And it's one of, one of Roosevelt's speeches. The Democratic Party turns its back on all of that after World War II. Yes. And 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 becomes with Kennedy the, the party of the greatest expenditure on the military industrial complex ever. Um, you know, it starts with Truman. And and Ellsberg has an interesting quote, Daniel Ellsberg, Pentagon Papers. He said he thinks now, he says the Cold War was essentially a commercial subsidy for the aerospace industry. <laughs> yeah. They needed an excuse to spend all this money on, on bullshit. That's pretty cynical, but it's hard to avoid that conclusion when you live in – nowadays when you live in Washington, D.C. And one of my friends was <laughs> describing this the other day and he said, basically, you know, we, uh, uh, we, we fight these wars just as a way of subsidizing these, these companies. You know, that's, that's what it exists. That's what, the, that's what we have the army for. For. It's just a you know a, a subsidy racket for these for these uh, private companies. The whole Sage Radar system, the thing, the big board like in Doctor Strangelove, a total fraud. Never worked for a day. Twenty five uh, over a trillion dollars over twenty five years. Uh, goes on and on. Where the whole military industrial complex fi- fundamentally driven by commercial interest, with the excuse being the Cold War. But the reason I'm going there. It's because the Democratic Party, at least an important part of it, and the part that still continues to control the machinery of it, is very much that party, and which includes the Vietnam War. And, and it's that section of the Democratic Party that so despises what they call populism. <laughs> Uh, so I, I talk a lot in the book about populist culture of the 1930s. And uh, w- one of the, the sort of great expressions of that period was this movie, Citizen Kane, which I'm sure you've seen. And I've, I have had myself seen many times. But while I was writing the book, I finally got to see it in, in high definition on a, you know, one of these modern TV sets. And um, I was really struck by it because it's it's on the one hand very you know uh, populist as all the stuff from that from that period is, but it's also the story of a demagogue, and the the sort of uh, uh, left culture of the 1930s was very 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 concerned with the problem of the demagogue. Uh, but they the in, the fascinating point is that they could draw a bright line between the demagogue and between between the demagogue and between legitimate populism. So Kane is is the great demagogue and he's appealing to, uh, you know, uh, people based, you know, for, you know, he's like talking about the underprivileged and the underfed and all this. And it's all, it's all bullshit and everyone can see that. Um, and, uh, and, and the other characters in the movie sort of, uh, remind him of, of how full of shit he is. Here's the thing that I want your, uh, that, that, that people don't remember. That's, that's Donald Trump's favorite movie. Okay. <laughs> Only he totally misunderstands it. He thinks the demagogue character in the movie, Kane, right? Citizen Kane, is the hero. That's a good guy. <laughs> he doesn't get it. So there's this moment where Kane is running for governor of New York. And he's, he's speaking in Madison Square Garden. 
and he's giving this kind of Trumpian speech. And uh, the, there's this huge picture of his of his own face behind him with his name in gigantic letters. And it's like that's what they did at the Republican convention in 2016. Remember Trump's name in huge letters. Trump puts his name on everything. And uh, the one of the promises that Kane makes in this speech, do you remember this, is to lock up his rival. He's going to throw his rival in prison. Lock him up. And uh, yeah, I was watching this and I'm like, oh, my God, I suddenly, you know, get where Trump, you know, came up with all this crap. But there's this scene where uh, that I didn't never noticed until I saw it on a high definition TV. And, and Kane is talking to his wife or something. There's a close up on his face. He's wearing a fancy tie with a stick pin in it. And the stick pin is the letter K. Great big gold K. <laughs> That's Trump. They're both these incredible. It's everything about Trump. These incredible narcissists, you know. He so he's it's a demagogue based on William Randolph Hearst, as imagined by Orson Welles, and this is Trump's hero. Isn't that amazing? Okay, well, I'm jumping too, but I got. I've been wanting to ask you this, so now as good a time as any. Why does that type of narcissist, at least nowadays? appeal to so many rural and some working class urban, but more rural people, a a complete, utter narcissistic character, so obvious to see. And he's not the only one that that appeals to people like that. Why? (sighs) Oh, my God, Paul, that's the that's a you know, that's that that should be the subject of my next book. But uh, so many people have tried to understand that. Uh, a, a lot of it is um, I would put much more emphasis. So we're, we're putting aside, you know, le- the possible legitimate reasons people might have had for voting for Trump, which you and I have talked about at great length. Yeah, and, we're and putting there are it, some, obviously. And, yeah, there yeah. are. And we're also putting aside the sort of uh, scapegoating reasons, the sort of racist reasons that people might have voted for him. And you're talking about something else, which I think is bound up in our uh, mass culture in this country uh, and in the sort of the logic of TV, the logic of specifically of reality TV, which has taken over television entertainment and uh, uh, people think there's something um, normal about that uh, they think there's something maybe even admirable about that by the way I would include the I think the left has gone down this path to a certain degree also and we'll talk about this I hope later on what I call the utopia of scolding I can't understand the logic of it because it's not it's not how you build a political movement well, let, let, well let's hang hang on to that because I think that's really important and we're gonna do that in the next segment but I, I just I want to go at this a little little more because it's not just the political figure like Trump like if I've always found it fascinating. I can't quite understand a culture, which at least until very recently was very homophobic, loved Liberace. I mean, the (laughs) the gayest guy you could find. I mean, and even, 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 even somebody as narcissistic as like Elvis Presley, he's not some, I don't know, the kind of gold and stuff he wore. I mean, there's a reason why uh, you go into, uh, transvestite and other kinds of clubs where people portray uh, different characters and they love to portray Elvis Presley because the, the, the flamboyancy, how does that appeal to conservative rural Americans? The same people who loved Woody Guthrie. Used to, and, yeah, before yeah, that. And, yeah. and the Jodes, you know, we're the people we keep on a coming. <laughs> 
I, Paul, I don't know the answer to that. And even if I did, I couldn't do it in, in one minute. So all right, that's well, the we'll, next book, man. We'll, we'll, <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll park that one. Okay, that's, that's the end of part two. We're going to do a part three with Thomas. Please join us for that on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.